Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, senior writer Jonathan Strickland from HowStuffWorks.com. I am still recovering from a cold, but every day I'm getting a little bit better, so I'll probably only get super raspy, I don't know, a dozen times in this episode. And today's topic comes to us courtesy of a little listener mail. This message is from Alex, and Alex said, I really enjoy listening to your episodes on CES and also listening to the shows that you broadcast every year from CES, and it got me to thinking. About two decades ago, there was a popular trade show called Comdex, which is not around anymore. I've always wondered what happened to Comdex and why it failed as a trade show. I know that some famous things happened at Comdex. The blue screen of death coming up on Bill Gates during a Windows 98 demonstration comes to mind. Thanks for making such a great show. Well, thank you, Alex, for those kind words and for the suggestion. 
Guys, remember, you can always write me to make suggestions for show topics or guests I should have on the show, or even if you just want to say hi, the email address you can use is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. I'll mention that again at the end of the show, but I know some of you tune out before I get to that. So that's what you can use as an email if you want to get in touch with me. Now let's talk about Comdex and its impact on the tech's industry. I can't just jump right on to Comdex, though. I actually have to go back a little bit. And and I also have to admit, this was a surprisingly challenging topic. There's not a whole lot written about Comdex as a whole, apart from some articles in computer industry magazines from the time that usually focused on either an upcoming show, like, you know, you might read an article in a, a magazine from 1987 about Comdex 87 being around the corner, or you might see an article that is talking about a show that just ended. Kind of similar to how people cover CES, right? There'll be uh, an article that says, oh, hey, CES is over. Here are what the big trends were. But you don't really find a whole lot of stuff about the life and death of the show as a whole. You have to find bits and pieces and then end up putting it all together and forming it into a, a, a meaningful narrative. So... This episode is really the result of hours of research. I had to piece everything together myself. So typically, for every hour of podcast that I produce, it takes about eight hours of research. That's typical. This one was way more than that. It had to be at least 20 hours of research, maybe more, uh, in order to get all of this. But that's enough stalling. Let's talk about Comdex. Uh, so back in 1970 which is, by the way, many years before Comdex actually officially began, there was a group of entrepreneurs uh, based out of Needham, Massachusetts, and they included Robert Bob Lively and Milton Burns. And uh, they created a magazine covering the world of computers and data communications, and the name of that publication was the Datacom User. And Datacom was one word and two M's at the end of com. Uh, this was before the era of the personal computer. It was even before the era that you would be able to, to purchase a kit and make your own personal computer. This was the era of many computers and microcomputers that were only meant for business or research purposes. So you didn't really see them in the home. But they were able to create a successful magazine. And two years after they launched it, the publishers partnered with a, a different person, a future casino magnate. Sheldon Gary Adelson to launch a new trade show that they were calling the Interface Conference and Exposition. Now, Adelson is, or Adelson is an interesting person, someone of great influence both in Las Vegas and in politics. He would uh, eventually go on to build one of the premium casinos on the strip, the Venetian. Anyway, after several successful years of running the Interface Conference and Exposition, the group saw another opportunity. So, it's 1979. The computer industry was starting to gain some traction, with the home PC market mostly stuck in the world of hobbyists and early adopters by 79. It was starting to slowly emerge from that market, but it wasn't yet to the point where computers were becoming household objects. Uh... It was fairly rare to run into homes that had one. They were expensive, and there just weren't a whole lot out there. Uh, you're talking about early Apple uh, computers. You're talking about the Commodore 64, the Tandy, that kind of stuff. 
more companies, though, were really looking into incorporating computers into the workplace. So the Interface Group organized a new event, and this was called the Computer Dealers Exhibition, which was later shortened to the name Comdex. Now, that 1979 show was modest by later standards. Modest is kind of overstating it. It was tiny compared to the show when it reached its peak. Uh, It took place in the MGM Grand in Las Vegas, and that was the MGM Grand at the time. The MGM Grand of today is not the same building as the one from 1979. Two totally different places. Uh, Approximately 4,000 people attended the show, with about 157 exhibitors present. Now, in those days, only industry representatives could attend. So you had to be inside the computer industry in order to to be considered uh, for attendance. So general public was not allowed to go into the show. It's very similar to the way CES is run. And for many years, E3 ran that way. Although uh, E3 2017, which is, you know, we're, I'm recording this in 2017. E3 2017 is the first time in several years that the show is going to be open to the general public, um, assuming that you were able to get a badge in time. Uh, I'm going to be at E3 this year, so that will be interesting. I can't wait to see wh- how it's different from... Uh, the years that passed that I have attended when it was industry only. Anyway, Comdex, when it started, only allowed industry members in. And it really didn't look at any of the personal computer stuff at all because, again, that was such a, a, a young market. It was really looking at the business applications for computers. So if you visit Las Vegas and you go to the MGM Grand, like I said, that's not the same casino as the one that hosted the first Comdex. If you want to visit the building where the first Comdex took place, you actually have to go to Bally's because that's what the old MGM Grand turned into. So a walk through Bally's Casino is also a walk through computer history in a way. And they really did focus on many computers, which were named many, but were honestly pretty huge machines. To to be fair, the original computers that came out, those were the ones that took up like an entire room or sometimes the floor of a building. Like they were huge, huge machines, those first computers, the ones that date all the way back to like the 40s and 50s. Uh, but the mini computers of the 70s were still pretty massive machines. And again, they were meant for corporate use or uh, manufacturing or things like that. They weren't meant to be on your table at home. Um, So they're industrial computers. Almost all the interactions at Comdex were all about business to business, with computer manufacturers courting big corporations like insurance companies and law firms. So really, if you might represent, say, a computer manufacturer And what you're trying to do is get that representative from that big insurance company to come see your stuff and say, yeah, you know what? I'm going to put in an order for X number of machines for us to use at our corporate office. That was kind of the purpose for Comdex. Uh, So it wasn't the sort of convention that the average computer junkie would even want to attend. That first Comdex, if you're a big computer nerd, you probably still would not be too keen on that first Comdex because it just, it it was geared toward a different type of person. It's more for business. Now, 
exhibitors also attended shows like Comdex for another reason, not just to connect with potential customers. They also wanted to see what the competition was up to. Keep in mind, these trade shows allowed companies to show off stuff that was in development, stuff that had not yet hit the market. That meant that if you were a competitor, you might get a look at someone's products before they actually hit store shelves. And if you are able, you might be able to suss out how those products are working and figure out your own version of that same product. It's not quite the same thing as copying someone else. It might involve some reverse engineering. A little ethically questionable, but it certainly was something that happened all the time. If a competitor's computer has incorporated a new feature that you saw customers were really finding uh, to be compelling, you might go back to your team and say, hey, uh, competitor X has this new peripheral and people are going gaga over it. We've got to create something equal to or better than that for our products. So it's really just a, a fuel for competition. And uh, just like CES gives rise to certain trends each year, so did Comdex. So another reason why companies would attend is to see what trends are starting to come up. And should there be uh, some that, that the company needs to get involved in, they could end up dedicating some resources to it and then become a player in that space. Uh, the worst thing in the world would be to be left behind and become obsolete and see your company's business fail because you weren't able to capitalize on an emerging trend. So some companies would send people out there just to see, all right, well, what's big this year and what do we need to pay attention to? So it really was all about business. Now, the event was was a success and the group planned a second event for 1980. And this one took place in the Las Vegas Convention Center. It had outgrown the MGM Grand. But a few attendees were staying at the MGM Grand. That's, you know, just that was the place where they had booked a room. Uh, but the show had already outgrown the conference rooms there. The new venue boasted 25,000 square feet of exhibition space and more than 7,000 people attended the show. So they nearly doubled in size. Now, that was the first year for the show to use Comdex as a name. And it was also a tragic year. Uh, something really disastrous happened that year. On the very last day of the Comdex conference, a fire broke out in the MGM Grand overnight. And it was a serious fire. And more than 80 people died, most of them from smoke inhalation, uh, because the smoke went up into the rooms and a lot of people were asleep and they never woke up. Now, out of those 80 people, eight of them were attending Comdex, and the tragedy marks the worst disaster in Nevada history and the third worst hotel fire in U.S. history. The cause of the fire was ultimately traced to an electrical ground fault in a wall socket. Uh, they had a nearby cooling unit for a pastry display case that had a pair of copper pipes that were uh, exposed. They, they, the insulation had worn down. The copper pipes had been vibrating at times, and that vibration had caused the pipes to rub together and the insulation protecting the pipes worn away, which meant that they could rub against each other. And this eventually caused the short, the electrical short, which then caused a fire. The fire spread very quickly, and it was a huge story both in Las Vegas and in the computer industry. 
Now, despite this tragedy, the conference continued and grew. Uh, it, it was on that last day of the conference. The following year, it was even bigger. Uh, you would actually see Comdex expand to two shows in that year. So in the springtime, they the organization launched a Comdex show in New York. The fall show stayed in Las Vegas. So they were splitting up uh, to two shows a year with one on the East Coast and one in Las Vegas. Uh, the New York show was a big success. Um, it was more than twice as big as the first Comdex show in Vegas. It had 11,000 attendees and 237 exhibitors. That Vegas show happened in the fall, and this was huge business, not just for the exhibitors and the attending professionals, but also for the organizers themselves. They were making a huge amount of profit. Uh, at its peak... Comdex could command $59 per square foot of exhibit space. And when it was the biggest trade show around, there was more than 1.3 million square feet available. And Comdex staffers were really, really pushing for companies to end up leasing that space. So they were making bukus of dollars, serious cash, just so they could a company can rent some carpeted floor. Um, yeah, if you want to read some vitriol about Comdex, just do some searches about how much money the organizers were making back in these days and and how a lot of the exhibitors felt that they were being uh, almost like extorted in order to rent larger and larger spaces year over year. Like they were being pressured by staffers who were acting like salesmen to rent more space each successful year. Um, it's one of the reasons why some companies said that they ultimately abandoned the show. Well, back in 1981, the show was still growing, just as the computer industry was growing. And holding two shows ended up working out, with the spring show in New York and the fall show in Las Vegas. So in 1982, they expanded again, and this time there were three shows the spring event occurred in Atlantic City, a.k.a. the Las Vegas of the East Coast, and the fall show happened in Las Vegas. But there was a third show that happened in Europe, and it took place in Amsterdam. That marked the beginning of Comdex expanding beyond the United States. Now, that trend would continue and snowball over the following years. So you start looking at the number of shows Comdex was holding year over year, and it kept on increasing. Uh, in 2002, there were 18 Comdex shows scheduled throughout that year. 18 different events through, across the globe in 2002. Now, one of those, the one that was scheduled for Mexico City, ended up getting canceled. But that still means there were 17 shows in 2002. I mean, that's think about how, how many resources you would have to dedicate to hold those, that many events around the world. All right, but back to the 1980s. So after those first few years, when everyone was concentrating on mini computers and business-to-business -business type stuff, personal computers began to play a role in shows because they were starting to take off. People were starting to purchase personal computers at a larger rate. It was going beyond the hobbyist and beyond the early adopter. And so it became part of Comdex history. You started seeing computers like the Apple IIe, and the first IBM-compatible computers, first you saw the IBM computers, and then shortly after that you saw the IBM clones. 
that were making their way to market. And you also had other computers like the Commodore 64, the Tandy computer, and the Amiga line of computers, which originally came from Commodore as well. And one of these days I'm going to have to do a full show about Tandy, I think, because it's hard to believe that a company that started off as a leather goods company got into the personal computer business. And for that matter, I should probably talk about IBM compatibles and clones, too, as that was a, a big, big deal early on in the personal computer age. And one of the reasons why IBM got out of the uh, consumer computer market entirely for many years. But the important thing uh, the important thing to remember in this part of the Comdex story is that these companies were becoming important enough to warrant a spot on the show floor. By 1983, Comdex started holding a show in Atlanta. That is the city where I am in. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. So I remember Comdex being talked about. Uh, I was a kid in the 80s, and um, I never attended a Comdex, but I remember people talking about them. And the show in Atlanta would continue yearly until 1996. And at that point, Comdex began to alternate between Atlanta and Chicago every year. So... Uh, probably would have been pretty bored if I'd gone to one of the Comdexes in Atlanta. I mean, these shows were huge and there were lots of uh, booths and everything. But again, it was mostly about like productivity machines and software and not really the kind of stuff I was interested in, which was namely computer games. You didn't really see a whole lot of that at Comdex because that's just not what the focus of the show was about. Also in 1983, I love this, Bill Gates gave his first speech at a Comdex in 1983. And that would become a regular event over future shows. And Gates would end up getting larger audiences every year. He would command a bigger room every year. It obviously became a much more important event in future Comdexes. But back in 1983, it was rather modest in comparison. So much so that the projectionist for Bill Gates's presentation was his own father, just think that's kind of a charming little bit of information. Well, I've got more to say about what happened to Comdex in the 1980s, but before I get into that, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, 
With SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so a couple of big events happened in the early 1980s that rippled through Comdex. For one thing, the Macintosh debuted in 1984, and that's when the graphics user interface, or GUI, became big in home personal computers. Uh, the The Windows system, Microsoft Windows, also made a big splash around that same time, and Microsoft and Apple had worked together developing a GUI. It wasn't exactly... You might hear stories about, oh, well, Windows was just copying the Mac OS. It's not entirely true, actually. The two companies were working together to develop GUIs. And to be fair, the graphic user interface wasn't developed out of Apple or Microsoft. The graphic user interface originated as a project out of Xerox Park. But that's another story for another time. The graphics user interface, however, was changing computers because it was seen as a much more intuitive, easy-to-understand system than command-line systems. So in the old days, if you wanted to run a program on your computer, you had to type in run and the program name, and then the computer would know to execute that command and start that program. Uh, You might have some programs that had an auto startup based upon the disk that you were using, And that would make things a little more smooth. But until the graphics user interface came along, you couldn't just click on an icon and have have something start. You actually had to type stuff in. And it wasn't exactly user-friendly for people who weren't already interested in computers. So it was sort of a barrier to entry. The graphic user interface lowered that barrier. And that's really when we started seeing personal computers take off. Uh, not just for homes, but in schools and all sorts of places. So 
the Macintosh and the Windows system were really important, and they dominated the show floor by 1985. Everyone was talking about Windows-based systems and graphic user interfaces. And it's funny because if you look back on these early Comdex shows, you can see the debut of stuff that we all take for granted now. Stuff that, you know, well, of course that exists. Sometimes we're talk- looking at debuts from stuff that's completely obsolete at this point. So if you are able to find videos from that era and you watch them, it's almost comical to see them debut because it's ancient history now in the in the computer world. Uh, one of the resources I used when researching this show was an episode of The Computer Chronicles from 1986. So at the beginning of that episode, the CEO of Digital Research talked about how applications had suddenly become important. So he was referring to programs like desktop publishing software or spreadsheet management programs, things like that, and that they were taking center stage because they were taking advantage of this graphic user interface. It's really similar in a way to how smartphone apps have become a major focus in the tech industry today. The hardware is still important, but a lot more attention is going toward the software running on top of the hardware. Well, Comdex was also where companies could show off new products like laser printers, which in the 80s were super, super new and exciting, or computer peripherals, or computer systems and software packages. And because the industry was heating up, the show just kept getting larger and more grandiose every year. And it wasn't long before companies began employing young women to entice people into booths. And I saw one journalist's uh, account of an early 1980s comdex that dismissively referred to these women as demo dollies. Now, at CES, you tend to hear these women being referred to as booth babes. And I'd just like to take a moment to address this because it bugs me. So as I get older, I get more uncomfortable with these terms. And that's because they ignore the fact that these women are human beings. <laughs> Many of them may be hired because of their appearance. You know, it might be that they have a modeling agency and a company hires them because of their profile in the modeling agency. And so it's completely based on their appearance. But it doesn't change the fact that we're talking about actual people here. Uh, I'm not a fan of companies using sex appeal to get people to pay attention to their stuff, particularly if we're talking about products that have nothing to do with being sexy in the first place. But the women and men, too, because we see male models also being pulled in for this duty, especially for things like uh, wearables and sports uh, type of technology at places like CES. We see both women and men who are you know, chiseled from marble showing these off. But that makes sense. You understand, right? All right. This person is fit and the product is promising to help you get fit. So you see the connection there. It's a little more tough if you're like, this is a case for a smartphone and this woman wearing barely anything is holding the case. It's a little harder to justify. Uh, I don't hold it against the models. They're doing a job. They were hired to do a job and that's what they're doing. And I also realize that my opinions are just my own and that I'm probably being a bit too old fashioned. But my main point is just to remember these are people, not just a walking, talking display. So I hate terms like booth babes or demo dollies, which I think is even somehow worse than booth babes. Um, 
because it is so dismissive. It's it's treating a person like an object. It truly is objectification, and I don't care for that. So old man lecture is over. But seriously, demo dollies, come on. Anyway, by the mid-1980s, companies creating IBM-compatible machines had pretty much run IBM out of the consumer PC business. The clones of IBM's machines were perfectly legal, as long as the companies making them could demonstrate that they didn't steal IBM's approach, but rather reverse-engineered it. Which seems like a pretty fine detail, but it's one that made the production of IBM clones completely legal. More on that if I ever do a full episode about IBM-compatible computers. Now, watching the Computer Chronicles also reminded me how the industry at that time was dominated by dudes. You know, in the 1980s, if you looked at the show floor for Comdex, men outnumbered women by an enormous percentage. Uh, apart from the women who were hired to lure people into booths, you hardly saw any females on the floor at all. But as the industry matured, we saw more women taking roles in the industry, including leadership roles. But uh, I'm pretty sure those early Comdex shows saw really long lines at the men's room and like almost completely empty women's restrooms. So an, an interesting juxtaposition in other compared to other arenas. Same thing was true of Consumer Electronics Show. And in fact, I would argue it's it's still largely true. We're seeing more and more uh, women on the show floor at CES, both in leadership positions and uh, attendees, that kind of thing. But uh, I think it's still far more men than women. But uh, But the early days of Comdex, it was ridiculous, that imbalance. One of the most amusing elements of the Computer Chronicles episode I watched was the segment dedicated to portable computers. So back in the 1980s, this was 1986, those devices were huge, largely because they had to have five and a quarter inch floppy disk drives because that was the the main media of choice in the mid 80s. Uh, the laptops, even the light ones, weighed somewhere around 12 pounds or more. So they were hefty enough that you wouldn't want them on your lap for very long. You'd also probably chuckle at hearing some of the processor speeds being uh, promoted back in those days. You'd hear something like, this processor has 16 megahertz processor speed. And you're, you, that's probably not going to impress you very much today. But, you know, different time. Another interesting product that was introduced and, and featured in that show was from Philips. It was a data storage system that consisted of 20 different disks arranged in a case. The disks were in cartridges, and a mechanical arm could go up or down the rack of cartridges and retrieve or insert disks to access the information on them. Now, each disk was 12 inches in diameter, and each disk could hold two whole gigabytes of information on it which meant that the entire apparatus could hold 40 gigabytes. So think about that for a moment. There are smartphones right now that can hold more than three times that amount of information, and those will fit in your pocket. So we've really come a long way since the 1980s. The 1986 Comdex show also had some of the earliest devices that we would put into the wearable category today. Puma showed off a gadget that snapped onto their running shoes, 
And it had a microprocessor inside of it that could detect whenever your foot made impact with the ground, and it acted as a step counter. So you could use it on a run, and you could do your run, and then after you were done running, you would have to go back home, and you would have to use a cable to hook the gadget up to your computer and pull the data off of the device so that you could look at it through the software running on your computer. That would give you a visualization of the data. And then you could see how far you ran and how many calories you burned. It's not quite as easy as connecting everything via Bluetooth, which is typically how it happens today, but it was a hint of what would follow almost 30 years later. Other emerging technologies that began to pop up at Comdex in the early to mid-1980s included voice recognition, optical discs, so CDs and things like that, three-and-a-half-inch floppy disks, and others. And we began to see the interesting seesaw relationship between hardware and software. So if you read articles from the 1980s about Comdex, you'll see journalists point out that these incredibly powerful computers that were hitting the market didn't have any software that took advantage of all that raw power. They'd say like, well, yeah, you can get this super fast machine, but what good is that? I mean, there's no software that really takes advantage of this machine's capabilities. We're never going to see that happen. I mean, it'll, it'll run existing software faster. So if you've got like a huge spreadsheet, it won't take as long for it to load. But other than that, I mean, why would you need all that power? Now, it's kind of funny to think that a 386 processor computer from the mid-1980s was thought to be more powerful than anything you would ever need because a 386 computer compared to today's smartphones would see clunky and and slow in comparison. Since those days, we've seen a lot more tech journalists agree to what is called Wirth's Law, which is named after Nicholas Wirth, who observed that software speed was decreasing at a rate faster then hardware speed was increasing. So in other words, software is getting bloated and requires more resources to run faster than we're seeing improvements in those resources. So year over year, it feels like computers are going slower rather than faster. It's not that the computers are less powerful than they were before. It's that the software requires more power than the previous generation's software. And that's because we get bloat, software bloat, over the course of many versions of the same program. So take take a word processor program. Well, every successive version of that word processor program is likely to be larger and more uh, resource-hungry than the version before because a company has to start including more and more features to convince you to upgrade, to buy the newest version. Otherwise, you would just buy one version and you'd stick with it until you, you know, until it just literally could not measure up to what you needed it to do. I mean, why would I need to buy a new word processor program if I've got one that works just fine? So to convince me to buy a new one, companies are going to add more and more features. Well, as software gets more complex, it becomes less efficient. And therefore, it requires more uh, power to run. And even to this day, there's still a temptation to declare a machine that has a screaming fast processor and cavernous storage capacity as being more than what you are ever going to need. But the more seasoned computer users among us know that eventually software is going to use up and maybe even exceed that hardware's uh, capabilities. 
So if you build it, the software will fill it. It's kind of like if you build it, they will come. Now, the show in Vegas in 1986 was just one of seven. The other six shows happened in Tokyo, Los Angeles, Atlanta, Amsterdam, Nice, and Sydney. And the show in 1986 in Vegas lasted five days. That was the longest conference up to that point. So things were still on the rise. Everything was still growing. Every year, more money was being poured into the show, and each show meant that there was more square footage to lease to companies. And the organizers were making some serious bank in those days. Meanwhile, exhibitors were enjoying the benefits of connecting with customers and getting an eye on what the competition was up to. And a lot of ideas were launched at Comdex, not all of them successfully. There were plenty of examples of products that never went anywhere, and vaporware became a common word. Vaporware, by the way, is when you announce a product that never actually comes to market. It just remains vapor. It's the Kaiser Soze of the technological world. Now, some Comdex shows also became vaporware. In 1987 and in 1988, the planned Comdex event in Tokyo was postponed. Essentially canceled. It never really happened. The 1991 event for Paris was canceled outright. Now, things were not dire, not by a long shot, but there were some growing pains as the organizers kept trying to increase the show's reach. Sometimes they did it faster than they could actually support. And typically the reason these shows would get canceled is because they weren't the show organizers weren't able to sell out enough space on the show floor to justify holding the trade show. So if they couldn't get enough vendors to agree to come to a show, they'd postpone it or cancel it, rather than lose money on throwing a show with a small number of exhibitors. By the late 1980s, Comdex was looking to grow some more, so it changed its attendance policy and started to sell admission to the general public. So for the first time, people unaffiliated with the industry or people who were not in the media could actually come to the show. And no big surprise here, attendance numbers exploded as a result. Now, this was not necessarily welcomed by all the other attendees. Um, some people were complaining that it was becoming too difficult to navigate the floor because it was just there were just too many people. There were too many bodies in the way. And other people were worried that the show would turn into an enormous marketplace with the general public purchasing products directly from manufacturers rather than retailers. You know, like, why bother packing this device back up and shipping it back to your headquarters? I'll just buy it off of you right here, even though it's not scheduled to launch for another three months. You also heard a lot of people say the show was starting to lose its focus. It was it was starting to incorporate too many things outside of the core computer and computer peripheral industry. And as a result, there were a lot of people worried that the show was starting to spiral out of control. Now, the early 1990s saw the rise of a new, very important player in the computer space, and that is the Internet. While the mainstream public was still getting a handle on what the Internet was back in the early 1990s, Comdex began to feature more exhibitors promising the information superhighway would change everything. And in many ways, they were right, though not all of their predictions would turn out to be accurate. For one thing, in the early 1990s, no one really had an idea of how the Internet could become a massive tool for commerce. It was more like a, a point of contact for people. So companies might have a website, but it was meant to give in information about a company or to allow 
a potential customer or an existing customer to contact the company. But there wasn't a whole lot beyond that in those early days, especially since, you know, the World Wide Web didn't really uh, debut until 92, 93. So before that, you're just talking about stuff like email and some other uh, functions that were mainly used in the academic world and were just barely getting a foothold in the corporate and then public world. Now, over the next several years, more exhibitors would show off systems designed to make accessing the Internet more intuitive and seamless, all the way from operating systems to web browsers. In early 1995, news broke that a suitor to Comdex would be taking over the show, and that suitor was a Japanese software company called SoftBank. The company made an $800 million deal with the Interface Group to acquire the trade show. Now, in 1994, SoftBank had already purchased a publishing exposition and conference division from the company Ziff Davis. They had tried to buy Ziff Davis outright, but Ziff Davis refused, and then instead settled on buying this division within Ziff Davis. So Ziff Davis spins out a division, sells it to SoftBank. This division was an events planning division for publishing expositions. Then SoftBank goes and buys Comdex from the Interface Group for $800 million. Now, these two purchases made SoftBank the largest name in the trade show game. And it also gave some prestige to the CEO of SoftBank, who is uh, Masayoshi Sun, who was sometimes called the Bill Gates of Japan. And his story is really interesting, too. Sun had overcome poverty and also social stigma to become a successful businessman in Japan. He was the son of two Korean immigrants. And in Japan at the time, Koreans were sometimes the victims of racial prejudice. So his story is pretty interesting. Maybe I'll do an episode about him sometime. At this point, Comdex was enormous. The 1994 show in Vegas had almost 200,000 people in attendance. That's a huge jump from that 4,000 from 1979. Now, keep in mind, they had also opened up the doors to the general public. So part of that growth was just from people curious to learn more about the latest computers, but they had no connection to the industry itself. Now, along with the growth in attendance was a growth of complaints among exhibitors. Some companies were protesting what they considered to be unfair fees and rental rates. But even though they felt that perhaps things were becoming a little unfair, most companies also felt that the show was too important to skip. They couldn't skip out on it or else they would be left behind by their competitors. So they would show up and they would pay. There had been talks of launching a competitor show, like a bunch of groups saying... <laughs> you know what, forget this, we're going to go out and make our own trade show. But they hadn't really gone far beyond just some big talk. Now, in the next section, I'm going to really concentrate on how the show got to its largest point and then what happened to make it disappear over the next few years. But before I get into that, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. 
Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so it's 1997. Comdex hits its peak. It gets the largest it will ever get in 1997. The number of exhibitors was more than 2,480, and they were taking up 1.35 million square feet of space on the show floor in the primary Vegas show of the year. The number of attendees was about 240,000. I mean, a huge number of people, like a quarter of a million people almost at 1997 Comdex Las Vegas. This was a monster of a show, but it also marked the beginning of the decline of Comdex. Exhibitors were complaining even more about predatory practices of Comdex staffers pressuring companies to invest in larger booths year over year. They were saying, well, we want to be part of the show, but every year we're making the arrangements, everyone's pressuring us to make our booth bigger, 
than the year before, which means we have to spend more money in order to be part of this show. And it's getting ridiculous. It got so ridiculous for some companies that they began to drop out, including big names. IBM withdrew from Comdex because of these practices. And according to a CNN money report from 2003, Comdex became a, quote, magnet for dumb money, end quote. Now, what they meant by that is that if you participated in Comdex year over year, that was just a recipe of diminishing returns. You were going to see fewer and fewer benefits of being part of the show. And ultimately, it would become a drain on resources, meaning you're losing more money attending the show than you're making out of business because of the show. So more exhibitors were starting to drop out following 1997. They were saying, well, I'm spending money, but I don't see the return on investment. This is like putting a, a, a big-time commercial out on a channel that no one is watching. What's the point? Now, behind the scenes, in a series of moves so complicated, I don't even understand them, SoftBank reorganized its divisions and departments. So it took the division that owned Comdex and that publishing conference I talked about before, it was essentially known as ZD Events at the time, and transformed this into a new entity, a publicly traded entity called Key3Media. That's key, the numeral three, and media all is one word. And this was a holding company. It was just existed to hold these assets. That's that's all it did. Now, SoftBank held about half of the ownership of Key3Media, but eventually it would spin it off completely. Now, that happened after SoftBank tried to auction off the events division. So why was it trying to sell something the company had only purchased a couple of years before. Well, perhaps organizing and running the events was too far outside the wheelhouse of the software corporation. The acquisition of Comdex and Ziff Davis's publishing conference didn't necessarily include the people with the knowledge and experience of organizing those events. At any rate, the auction did not result in any satisfactory offers. Apparently, the, the largest offer on the table was for $640 million, which is way less than the $800 million SoftBank paid for Comdex alone, never mind the Ziff Davis deal. So Key3 Media would eventually become an independent spinoff and the sole owner of Comdex. Now, the head of Key3 Media was a guy named Fred Rosen. And Rosen had made a fortune growing and then selling Ticketmaster. Boo, Ticketmaster. That's my own personal uh, bias coming through. I have an issue with Ticketmaster. I have many issues with Ticketmaster. I should do an episode about them, but it will be the most unbiased, unforgiving episode of Tech Stuff ever. So maybe I should just keep my trap shut. Anyway, Rosen reportedly ran Key 3 as if it were a massive corporation rather than an events production company. He moved the headquarters to an expensive part of Los Angeles, not too far from his own mansion, and he would end up taking company trips on a private jet across the world. His salary was $1.5 million in 2001. That's a big salary for a CEO, especially considering most CEOs get the majority of their compensation and benefits as opposed to a direct salary. A million and a half in 2001 is no chump change. 
Former employees said that his managerial style was incredibly confrontational and off-putting, so much so that he was driving away staffers who had been working in the trade show industry for decades, which meant that, as a result, Key 3 was depleting its company's talent pool. You had fewer and fewer people around who knew how to handle uh, trade shows. So it was a mess, to put it lightly. Now, this takes us to 1998, and this was the year that featured that infamous blue screen of death during a demonstration of an early build of Windows 98. You heard our listener Alex refer to this earlier. So what happened? Well, Bill Gates and Chris Caposella were on stage during the keynote event to talk about Windows 98, which had not yet launched. It was still in development. It had actually been delayed. And uh, Capicella was trying to show how Windows 98 could download drivers. You know, drivers are these components that are needed so for software and hardware to work with the operating system. And he was explaining how seamless this operation was when the computer crashed and went to the blue screen of death. At which point, Bill Gates started chuckling, and Capicella was like doing a little bit of a shuffle. He was very quickly trying to switch away from the monitor screen. And it could have been an embarrassing disaster, but I think they actually handled the problem really well with humor. So the audience started laughing, and Capicella, who was responding to the audience's laughter at the blue screen of death, said, moving right along, in a very self-deprecating way. Like, he wasn't angry, he seemed a little chagrined, but not, not completely thrown off. And then Bill Gates said, this must be why we're not shipping Windows 98 yet. To which Capicella said, absolutely, absolutely. So it was a moment that reminded everyone that sometimes stuff just goes wrong. And I actually like watching this clip. I I was afraid to watch it. I never watched it at the time. And I tend to feel a lot of empathy for people who are giving a public presentation. Because there are enormous pressures on you when you are giving a live speech in front of a big crowd of people. Keep in mind, we're talking Comdex when the uh, the attendance is like 200,000 plus people. You could have thousands of people in that audience all focusing on you and something goes wrong. I feel nothing but empathy because I've been in those kind of situations at a much smaller scale and it feels like torture. But I liked watching this clip because it didn't feel awful. It felt like they handled this pretty well. It feels actually pretty natural. So... For one thing, it's not a presentation that fools you into thinking a product is completely flawless. If you've ever been to any product demonstration where it's clear everything has been pre-recorded and, and rehearsed so that nothing goes wrong, it doesn't feel genuine. And you might even feel when you get your hands on the real thing that you were given a misrepresentation of what it was all about. Seeing something kind of fail and people acknowledge it and move on was a little refreshing. So it's just a kind of a funny moment and something that Microsoft presentations frequently had. That is funny moments, not failures. And some of those funny moments were intentional and some of them were not intentional. Developers, 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 developers. 1998 was also the first year to see a major decline in attendance. So I said 200,000, but actually it was fewer than that at that point. This was the beginning of the end for Comdex, though at the time no one could see that. It did just appear to be a blip in the growth. And the following year saw another dip. And the number of exhibitors in 2000, or 1999 rather, was uh, 1,911. 
So more than 2,400 in 97 and 99, 1,911, we start seeing fewer exhibitors showing up. More people are uh, irritated with the way Comdex is running things, or rather the way Key3 Media is running things, and are not coming back. Now, there was a little bit of a rally in 2000. A few more exhibitors signed up, mostly new companies, but that was not to last. Also in 1999, Comdex organizers shook things up by changing the requirements for mass media. And a lot of major outlets that had been covering Comdex since the beginning found themselves turned away. And that really shook things up. I mean, you had big, big names in mass media told that they were not going to be allowed to attend Comdex. And that did not help the organization at all. I mean, making sure that you... Uh, you alienate media is a good way to have some pretty negative coverage about your organization. And in 2000 and 2001, there was another problem. This was outside of Comdex. This was a huge problem that had global implications. And I'm talking about the dot-com bubble burst. So the dot-com bubble, that's when you had all these web-based companies popping up getting huge amounts of investment capital, whether it was private investment or the company had gone public very early, the value of the company was inflated beyond what it could actually do. And then ultimately, many of these companies failed to show any real value and the bubble, this investment bubble, burst. Dozens of companies went under and companies in the computer industry in general suffered. Even if they weren't directly tied to dot-com because they were in the computer industry, they were hit pretty hard because there was a ripple effect that came outward from the dot-com companies to all the other computer companies that were, you know, kind of in that same pool, even though they weren't necessarily themselves a dot-com company. Well, that meant that that ripple effect continued to hit Comdex. And another event also ended up really setting Comdex back. And that was the terrorist attack on September 11th, 2001 in the United States. That affected trade shows because it, it ended up affecting international travel. It scaled back international travel to, to a huge degree in the wake of those attacks, completely understandably. I mean, there's, there's, there's nothing to, else to say about that, but it did affect the trade shows at a time when Comdex was already having problems. So the Las Vegas Comdex show in 2001 had 125,000 attendees. That's still a large number of people, you know, 125,000, but still very short of that 240,000 the show had at its peak. In 2002, Key3 Media was in dire straits, and not the band, with three days to go before the Las Vegas trade show opened, the company announced in its quarterly earnings statement that it might have to enter Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection if it could not raise more capital or sell the company off or find a merger partner. Key3 Media's revenue had plummeted in 2002. So in 2001, the third quarter revenues were at $51.5 million. In 2002, third quarter revenues were down to $38.4 million. That's a big drop. Over the course of the full year, the company had lost nearly $300 million. In 2001, it was in the black. It had made a profit of $14.1 million. So small profit, relatively speaking, 
But the loss of $300 million, that's a huge, huge downturn. Things were looking pretty awful. On top of that, the company had an upcoming interest payment on a debt it owed. And no one was really sure if they the company would actually be able to sign the check to pay off that interest payment, which is why they were looking at the possibility of entering Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. Shares of Key3 Media were down to a measly 1.4 cents per share. It's pretty ugly, folks. Now, in February 2003, the Key3 Media filed for Chapter 11 protection. When it finally emerged from Chapter 11, so they were able to get their act together and come out of Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection, they also rebranded themselves. They were no longer Key3 Media. Now they were called Media Live. And there was some hope that this new brand would be able to recapture the glory days of Comdexes in the past, but it was not meant to be. The 2003 show drew only 50,000 attendees. 50,000 is still a lot of people, but not compared to 240,000. In 2004, in a move that shocked very few people, Comdex Las Vegas was canceled. The struggles of Media Live were well known. They were pretty public. People knew that the company was in trouble. Attendance had dropped significantly over the past few years. So many large companies had pulled out of the show expressing their exasperation of dealing with the policies and high-pressure sales tactics of the organizers. There was still some hope along Media Live lines that 2005 would be different, that they would be able to come back in 2005, and 2004 would just be a year off. But in 2005, all of the company's planned Comdex events were canceled, except for one. So... It was supposed to happen in Las Vegas, but it didn't. The only Comdex event to happen in that year was in Greece, in Athens. But all the other ones were canceled. Analysts said that the implosion of Comdex came about due to a mix of mismanagement, uh, depletion of talent, bad marketing choices, and also just that exhibitors weren't willing to play ball anymore. So the problem was that they couldn't get enough companies to agree to be part of the show to have a show. It's kind of like throwing a huge party advertised as a star-studded event, but the only celebrities who show up are a couple of folks from one of the later seasons of MTV's The Real World. doesn't really work. You can't really fuel a celebrity party that way. No offense to anyone who's ever been on MTV's The Real World. It didn't help that shows like the Consumer Electronics Show, now known just as CES, had become more popular. Some of the big names that had been regulars at Comdex had withdrawn and now were attending CES instead. Comdex would see a bit of a revival, a strange revival in 2010. So it had gone dead between 2004 and 2010, but in 2010... We saw Comdex Virtual. So instead of a physical trade show that you would go and attend, featuring thousands of people walking around the convention center, Comdex Virtual was a website you would go to, and it simulated a trade show. You could watch keynote speeches, and you could virtually visit vendor booths. And it showed up again in 2011, and one more time in 2012, and then it faded away. If you were to go to the Comdex virtual website today, you would get an under construction page, which seems charmingly out of date if you ask me. And that's the story of Comdex, from its birth to its death. 
Trade shows still exist. Some of them are as large or larger than Comdex was at its height. Others are a bit more modest. And we're seeing some companies like Apple and Google concentrate on holding their own events rather than abiding by an annual trade show schedule. So instead of saying, we're going to hold off on announcing something uh, until someone else's schedule lines up, they say, no, we'll hold our own events. And we don't. that way we don't get lost in the shuffle. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks again to Alex for suggesting it. If you have a show idea you'd like me to cover, please let me know. You can send me an email at techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Twitter or Facebook. The show's handle is techstuffhsw. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.